Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com. I'm told he was offered a ride in one of those Blue Angels planes flying over Virginia this past weekend, but declined because he found the seats were too narrow, they wouldn't recline, there was too little legroom. If true, isn't that ironic? He's former CEO of Spirit Airlines, Ben Baldanza, who now teaches about how airlines work. You know, crises like the one we're in also create opportunities. So fans of his wonderful book can only hope that we see an update soon that would be titled Glory Lost in Town and then Lost Again. It's Seth Kaplan, NPR's here now transportation analyst. Hopefully found again, uh, not just for Delta this time. Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Well, what I said about Ben isn't the only thing about this show that's ironic this week. Uh, stick around and you'll see what I mean, or on second thought, maybe don't stick around. <laughs> oh no, Seth. Last week you destroyed that great Mark Cohn song. Don't tell me you're going to blaspheme Alanis Morissette too. I don't know. We'll see. Well, there's nothing ironic about another not-so-civil disagreement aboard another spirit flight. But first, there's a lot to discuss, considering air travel demand worldwide is down something like 99%. So let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Ben, you're right about that. Almost seems the amount of news is inversely proportional to the number of people flying. So much to get through. Uh, First of all, in the U.S., in the absence of any kind of national regulations regarding the use of masks in airports and on airplanes, nothing like when Canada mandated masks a couple of weeks ago, JetBlue became the first U.S. airline to announce it would require passengers to wear masks aboard all its flights. Uh, Within a couple of days, most U.S. airlines matched the move. Uh, The last one to do it as of the time we're recording this was Spirit. The only major airline I haven't seen do it yet again as of now is Allegiant, although I should mention in one sense Allegiant is going beyond what some airlines are doing by actually providing masks to all passengers as part of a sanitation kit along with wipes and gloves, and it's urging passengers to wear masks even though it's not requiring it again as of now. Ben, Look, I know you're on the board of JetBlue, and I appreciate how you just always come on here and react candidly to whatever's in the news, good and bad, about all airlines and all the inside scoop you give us about things that have happened over the years. I realize you can't talk about what's currently going on inside an airline where you have a relationship today, but I'll just say I think this was JetBlue doing a great job of sort of seeing what was going to happen anyway, getting ahead of it and getting the PR benefit of going first. Gary Leff, who writes the View from the Wing blog, a lot of people read wrote last week, he called it a product attribute, you know, just uh, something that would be attractive to some people. And that's kind of how it seemed to me. And I'll tell you, in between the time when JetBlue made that announcement, I think it was Tuesday of last week, and when the other airlines started matching, I think Thursday might have been when they were all doing it, my mother called me and said a friend of hers, so this is somebody not so young, wanted to fly to Atlanta to be there for the birth of a grandchild later in May. I think the due date's like in early June or something. She's trying to figure out how to get there, and JetBlue right now isn't flying Fort Lauderdale, Atlanta. That would be the route. You know, Delta's doing it. So 
What should she do? And I said to my mom, I said, look, I think all these airlines are going to match. I think she can go ahead and book a flight on Delta if that's the airline she wants to fly or you know, American from Miami to Atlanta, whatever. And by then, by the time her flight comes around in late May, they're going to be requiring masks. But the point is that what JetBlue did had indeed, as Gary described it, become a product attribute. And so, you know, in other cases, other airlines have gone first on something that was the way the world was going anyway, might as well get the benefit. And that's what JetBlue did here. Well, thanks a lot, Seth. And I do think that was a really, really smart decision. You know, airlines need to get confidence back in the consumer, confidence that it's okay to travel again. And it's not that there's any one thing that's going to do that, but clearly wearing facial coverings is going to help. Also with the virtual inability to distance on an airplane, the face masks or the facial coverings, sort of a replacement in a way for distancing. If uh, somebody coughs near me, at least my mask might protect me from some of those droplets. Or if I cough, I protect others from what, what happens to me. So the idea of keeping your space around you clean, wearing facial coverings, maybe some tests that if they come in place could be done before you board. It's going to take all these kinds of layers of things to bring back confidence to travelers that it's okay to travel again. And that's what the industry really, really needs, I think. You know, I was on CBS4 News in Miami last week, the day that that happened, uh, talking to Ted Scout and a reporter there uh, and saying basically that I expected at that point, and I mean, you didn't have to be Nostradamus to predict this, that, that other airlines would soon match as they ended up doing. And, and Ted interviewed people in the airport, a few of the only people who were, were traveling that day, and a couple of passengers in masks who said that they were glad that JetBlue had done that, that they would appreciate an airline doing that. And then he talked to this one woman who wasn't wearing a mask and, and said, you know, she doesn't think she has to wear a mask and, and she'll fly an airline that doesn't require masks. And I remember thinking to myself then, I think you're soon going to run out of airlines <laughs> to choose from. <laughs> I, I guess as of this moment, she could still fly uh, Allegiant, but it wouldn't even be socially acceptable on, on there because they made clear that they believe in, in the mask too. So, so clearly this was something that people wanted. And, I, and I, I think you're right, Ben, that in the end, planes aren't designed for social distancing. And you know we're not going to be sitting six feet apart from people. And this is how the world is going to open up too, right? Like for at some point here, we're going to be able to do some of the things where people in some states are already able to, other places they'll be able to, things that they couldn't do in, in, in March or April. But hopefully people are still going to continue to wear masks because the, the, the coast isn't clear, you know, until there's... I mean, look, until there's a, there's a vaccine that everybody's taken, there are going to be some people at risk. And, and so, yeah, this is a step and, and that's all it is. But good to see uh, that requirement. I know I would feel safer right now. Well, 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 Seth, and to be honest, we would have been safer wearing masks before this too, sure. in terms of protecting from the common cold and uh, other viruses and things. And I'm not comparing coronavirus to the cold. Right. I'm not saying that. But the reality is we would always be safer wearing masks around other people. That would have been true before. It certainly will be true in the future. And now we have yet another risk and one that does not yet have a vaccine and that we don't fully understand the risks of, which is why it is so important, I think. And we are all permanently becoming more germophobic because of this, whether we realize it or not. You know, when you take a trip to Asia, people who have done flown to or, or within Asia, and even when there's no specific current threat, you'll see some people wearing masks because of what they've dealt with in the past there. And I, I'll be the first to admit, I've thought to myself, is that a little bit of an overreaction when I've seen that, you know, when, when, when there wasn't something going on right then? And now I 
totally get it. And you're going to get on an airplane two or three years from now in America and in Europe and in other parts of the world after there's hopefully long been a vaccine and this isn't the threat that it is now. And you're going to see a handful of people at least wearing masks and you'll understand it whether or not you're one of those people. Well, United Airlines, Ben, has said It'll cut 30% of management jobs. It's more than 3,000 jobs come October. Thousands of pilot jobs are on the line too. And even among pilots lucky enough to stay, look, with all the wide-body aircraft being mothballed and retired, you're going to see a lot of pilots retraining to fly smaller aircraft. You're going to see captains becoming first officers again, all of them losing a lot of money because of that. Again, that's the lucky ones who are still going to have their jobs. Now, of course, you don't have to be Nostradamus to predict this either, that other work groups at United, even if it hasn't specifically said this about all of them, are going to be impacted greatly too. Now, the reason this will all happen in October is because as a condition of accepting at least $25 billion in aid, major U.S. airlines had to promise no involuntary job losses through the end of September. Now, Ben, United has taken all kinds of flack for this announcement because it's it's an easy line to draw between accepting all that money and literally the first day that they're allowed to lay people off, they're going to make some of the biggest job cuts we've ever seen. On the other hand, I don't know if there's anybody who thinks that United's, not gonna, that United's gonna be the only airline doing it. I mean, it seems like United, if anything, is just being honest first about what's likely to happen about at a lot of airlines, including who knows, maybe Southwest, which has never in a half century laid off involuntarily a single individual. United seems to be taking the approach, Ben, that Northwest Airlines used to be famous for. I sang that song about them last week. But you know, they when they filed for bankruptcy, there was a saying there. They said, "We're going to do it. We're going to do it once. We're going to do it right, and we're not going to have to do it again." Basically, they went through this brutal, bloody process, but they did restructure themselves and, and became a successful airline again. Uh, and that seems kind of like the approach United's taking. They're not weighing things. They're saying, "Look, this is how it's going to end anyway. So let's." Let's let's just go there. Yeah, you know, um, Scott Kirby, their incoming CEO, he's been the president there for a while, but he'll be taking over from Oscar, Oscar Munoz soon, you know, channeled uh, his inner Rudy Giuliani and said that hope is not a strategy. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, so they were planning for zero net revenue right now, meaning, you know, the revenue coming in would be fully offset by refunds they're making to people for a while. And that might be the right conservatism to be to plan. It's talking about layoffs happening immediately after the subsidy from the government ends is an interesting strategy. Uh, in some ways, it's probably what they would have to do if in fact demand doesn't return by then. And in that way, they probably are being honest and they're giving as much room for their employees to figure out what to do and figure out what this means for them and what their options are. On the other hand, it could be a little bit of a signal to the government to say, you know, you, you helped us through September, but if you really want people employed during the election, you better, you better re-up this <laughs> thing. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm just—I don't know if that's good point. No, yeah, and, I, okay, and that's a good. I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned it because I want to ask you in a minute to help me sort of read between some other lines. Um, but you know, and, and look, this is all part of a broader debate here, right? I mean, $2 trillion so far in aid, totally unprecedented. That's just in the US to, 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 
to the country in, in general, uh, being borrowed basically to, to stimulate the economy and to protect people. I guess part of the lesson here is that it's hard to, you know, when you have four days or something to figure out how to spend two trillion dollars the right way. <laughs> it's, it's hard to do. Uh, and, and we've seen other controversies about, you know, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, the steakhouse chain, you know, getting whatever it was, $20 million, I think, whereas a lot of small restaurants didn't manage to get their small neighborhood restaurants didn't manage to get their hands on the aid. Or here in Northwest Washington, where I live, near where you live, there's the famous Sidwell Friends Private School where, you know, Obama's daughters went and where, uh, well, um, Chelsea Chelsea Clinton Clinton went, yeah, also, uh, you know, getting $5 million in aid, even though there are these small nonprofit daycare centers uh, that haven't managed to get aid, right? But then there are other things where you're not going to see people holding pitchforks, but that are just as unfair. There are people, the way they had to quickly set up this unemployment insurance scheme in the US, this greatly enhanced scheme, there are people who are earning more money laid off than they were earning at their jobs. And, they're, and that's, that's unusual in the US. Uh, you know, usually unemployment is very meager, right? There are people who are earning something like for the moment, something like the equivalent of $50,000 a year for not working when you have people at supermarkets exposed to COVID every day earning half that because they weren't, you might say, lucky enough to be, <laughs> to be laid off, right? And, and so <laughs> there are all these inefficiencies and distortions and, 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 and I guess, you know, as unseemly as it is to talk about what's called helicopter money, where you just sort of no strings attached, you just sort of hand out money to people. You know, it's an interesting thing to think about $2 trillion. I, I, I did the math a minute ago. If you figure out 200 million US adults, something like that. You could also just give everybody $10,000 for $2 trillion. And you'll wonder if that wouldn't have been a better way to, to, to do it. Again, not an airline industry debate, but just sort of a broader debate uh, about how tricky this all is. But I did think that the first $25 billion of aid that went to the airline industry was actually quite um, reasonably structured in that it had a very specific goal. It wasn't, here's money until we figure things out. It was, here's money to keep people employed so that they stay current in their jobs, so they don't have to file for unemployment, right? So they can keep paying their rent and their car payments or whatever their bills are. And so don't put extra stress on the economy by having to lay off more people given that there aren't people flying your planes. And don't take longer to bring your planes back into service once we need you back again, right? And so it seemed like that was actually quite logically structured, that piece of the aid. All the other stuff, you're right, was, you know, I also read a story about a woman in England who got a $1,200 check. Right. And maybe she had an address in the U.S. at one point. I mean, yeah. I can't imagine they just sent someone some, some money to someone in England, right? But, you know, it is hard to execute these sort of things and, and do it. I think for in the airlines case, a specific grant, which turned out to be 70-30 grant loan, but as a specific grant to keep people employed is almost a noble kind of thing. Well, through the summer, let's let's let people keep paying their bills, be ready to fly, do that. But again, it ends in September. You know, going back to the note on United, and so everything else. 20, first twenty-five billion. I guess that's a drop in the bucket compared to two trillion. Maybe we couldn't expect them to spend the rest so intelligently. And I guess an important, or, or to sort of reframe what you said a different way, an important 
indisputable thing to recognize is that it's not a net $25 billion into the pockets of airlines. I mean, whatever anybody thinks about that, you know, it's mostly a pass through to employees. And so the other way of doing it, uh, which, you know, in some ways, I mean, some, some people would say would have been less distortionary because lots of other industries didn't get that specific aid. Uh, but regardless, the other way to do it would have been all those airline employees being unemployed and getting the federal assistance anyway, right? So whether you give airlines $25 billion, as you said, it's only 75, 70% is going to be a grant, but whatever, call it, help me out here, uh, you know, 17, what's that, 17 and a half billion in just aid that's being helped. You know, the other way to do it was for that money, most of it just be handed to employees directly as, as unemployment, which is kind of what's happening uh, anyway. You know, Ben, I, I've, I've heard some interesting comments. You, you mentioned sort of reading between the lines of what United said, you know, whether it's a signal. And there's no question that all of these airlines welcomed that first tranche of aid. But I think going forward in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world, look, we saw Qantas basically lobby against aid in Australia, uh, thinking that I mean, rather clearly thinking that aid would help its weaker competitor, Virgin Australia, more than it would help Qantas. Air Canada uh, made some comments when it re released its awful earnings where its, its CEO, Callum Revenescu, kind of said, he said, you know, I don't know if the government's going to help us. And I sort of listened to that and I wondered if that was more wishful thinking in a way because Air Canada is the strongest Canadian airline, knowing that if the government doesn't do a lot, it'll hurt you know, WestJet more than it'll hurt Air Canada because WestJet actually went into this crisis in worse shape than Air Canada. They had switched places in recent years. WestJet used to be a, a very successful airline. And, and Delta, you know, Ed Bastian uh, also made comments during Delta's earnings call where he said, you know, I, I'm not expecting any further aid. And I sort of wondered also there whether that was really just a prediction or in his case, some wishful thinking, a little game theory, thinking, you know what? Delta's in a better spot, as awful of a spot as in. Delta's in a better spot than, let's say, American, right? They're going to take Delta and Southwest that went into this with better balance sheets. And so am I reading too much into it to thinking that there are some airlines around the world, Ryanair and Wizz Air are complaining in Europe about aid to the flag carriers, airlines around the world that are starting, you know, once this whole thing's stabilized, to think, you know what? We don't want the free money because it just helps our weaker competitors more than it helps us. Well, you know, Seth, there are people who believe that the Chapter 11 bankruptcy laws in the country aren't fair because they essentially allow less efficient or less prepared companies restructure themselves and come back to compete more efficiently when their competitors who didn't need that protection don't necessarily get the benefits that they get in Chapter 11. Right. So it's a yeah. similar kind of argument here. I can absolutely see how there are some airlines who say, look, it's better off if we don't get more aid because they feel that their own cash coffers or their own ability to manage through this or how their airline can appeal to customers as demand starts to come back relative to the competition. I think they might say, look, we can weather this. And so why give out help to everything else? And in Delta's case specifically, I think it's interesting that Ed Bastian said that because I'm sure you remember, Seth, maybe some of our listeners will too. Years ago, Delta was arguing against a lot of investment in new air traffic control 
And right, sure. And, and the reason they were doing it is they ran pretty much on time. They have an older fleet of planes you know, that they manage through a, you know, good, good management of their balance sheet and the good maintenance on their planes. And they said, look, we figured this out. And if we figured it out and we found a way to be on time in the current system and nobody else has, why make everybody on time? That hurts us. Right? Yeah. And it was that same kind of argument. So it doesn't really surprise me that Delta's taking the position of, well, we're pretty strong. Maybe we don't need the aid, especially if that aid strengthens some of my competitors. I, I understand why they might say that. Actually. Right. And, and again, they haven't officially taken that position. It was, it, was that, right. it was Bastion, and this is just me interpreting, but it was just interesting. It was, it was stated as a prediction, but you wondered if it was something more than that. And Ben, I want you to help me read between the lines regarding something else. Boeing paid Southwest $428 million in compensation for losses in 2019 related to the 737 MAX grounding. That's about half of what Southwest says the grounding cost it. Southwest gladly cashed the check and then promptly admitted that right now the grounding isn't costing it anything. Southwest CEO Gary Kelly more precisely said, quote, in fairness, we don't need the MAX right now. We don't need all the airplanes we have. It's hard for me to argue to Boeing that we're being damaged by max delays here in April, he said at the end of April, to be brutally honest, unquote. Now, Ben, Gary Kelly isn't stupid. Am I reading too much into this to think he's setting up what's now a more important argument, which is that all of the maxes are worth a lot less, those other maxes that that are sitting on the ground uh, with Boeing and that haven't been built yet, that they're all now worth a lot less than what Southwest agreed to pay for them, and that that sum of money, <laughs> the, the incremental uh, amount that they're worth less, is, is a lot more than $428 million. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's funny how things work sometimes. You know, if you're a, a music fan, Seth, you, you will know that uh, when Buddy Holly died, one of his band members, Waylon Jennings, didn't get on the plane because there wasn't room for everyone, and he said, I'll just drive to the next gig. Yeah. And Waylon Jennings recently died. And, uh, but, you know, that was an interesting story. And so what, what appears to be sort of a, a really bad decision at first or a really bad situation at first, not enough room on the plane and Waylon Jennings, yeah. case, you know, honest, yeah. obviously, and now in this case, much b- bigger thing with the 77 Mac turns out to be actually maybe not so bad for Southwest in the short term, right? In that they got this cash at the exact time they needed. Right, yeah. right, right. To get that kind of money from Boeing at exactly the time when every airline is figuring out every possible way to get liquidity, selling frequent flyer miles in advance to banks, and doing everything they can, and they get this four hundred twenty-eight million dollars dropped in their pocket, which they they probably deserve. Right, they were a big flyer that plane. They lost a lot of flying that would have been profitable before this because they didn't have that plane. So I'm sure that number isn't made up. I'm sure it was probably a lot bigger in what Southwest claimed and initiated down to that point. But it is, it is really interesting whether or not, you know, the world at some point is going to need the max again. And the max was selling well before the crashes because it promised to be a good, efficient airplane. It clearly had problems and, and those problems are hopefully have been or are being fixed. Eventually, regulators in the U.S. and around the world will be convinced it's really fixed and airlines will believe they can fly the plane safely again and pilots will feel comfortable they know the plane. All that's going to happen again. And, but 
there just is, doesn't seem an urgency right now that it has to happen again that quickly, does it? Right? I mean, yeah. before, before we were saying, when's the match going to come back? And it's been a year now, and when is this plane going to come back? Because we felt that the world needed this airplane to compete with the A320neo, to, to um, supply fast-growing world demand for travel, and not only in North America, but all around the world. And now there's a sense that we don't know how many planes the world's going to need overall. So how important is it the Max that comes, comes back? It's important because if the industry is going to be smaller, you still want it to burn less fuel and you still want it to be really efficient. Sure. And the Max should be able to do that. So you'd probably, if the, the world's going to be smaller, you still probably want Maxes in that world and fewer older gas guzzling airplanes. But it certainly doesn't seem the intensity to get it back in the air right away is there anymore. Yeah, it turns out for Boeing, the only thing worse than having a bunch of airplanes on the ground that everybody wants is having a bunch of airplanes on the ground that nobody wants for now anyway. Well, time now for a shameless plug. Not by me this time, although thank you, Ben, for mentioning my book earlier. Didn't know you were going to do that. <laughs> uh, but by Ben, or okay, actually by me for Ben. Ben, I started reading this great piece in Forbes with a headline, Low-Tech Ways to Make People More Comfortable to Fly. And then I saw who wrote the piece and all the great insights immediately had less credibility with me. Okay, no, I'm kidding about that part. But I'm not kidding about the fact that you're the author. Now, we already talked earlier about masks or other face coverings. Can you tell us a few other low-tech ways you mentioned in the piece that can make people feel more comfortable about flying? Sure, Seth. And, you know, the, the idea for that article was we don't have to wait for a magic pill. Right? We don't have to wait for a vaccine. We don't have to wait for some, you know, really super accurate test that can be that can be done in, in minutes, you know, while you're waiting in line or something like yeah. that. Um, there are things the industry can do right now uh, to say we need to build confidence back in the industry. So we certainly talked about face coverings and and the fact that the industry has moved on to that with the blue lead, I think is great. But I talked about other things. One might be maybe handing out disinfectant wipes as you're boarding the plane or maybe on the plane if you need one. That allows people to take control of their own space. There aren't that many surfaces you can touch when you're sitting in your seat, but the tray table, the armrest, yeah. the... Uh, and that's, something, that's one of those things that Allegiant has said it's going gonna, it's gonna to be doing here, handing out these little kits with, uh, with the disinfectant wipes. So yeah, good for... That's right. And, and I imagine people will, a lot of people bring those things on their own too. But, you know, again, take, take control of your own space and people can help with that. Also, I think, you know, we, we've talked before about how air in a plane moves vertically, not horizontally. So if you and I are sitting a few tables apart in a restaurant and I cough, the, the air in the restaurant brings my cough to you because it moves horizontally, right? And that's not so great for you. But in the airplane, if we're a couple rows apart and I cough, the air in the plane is going to push the cough down into the, into below the, below the aisle because that's the way the, play, the air flows. It's vertical. So it doesn't mean you can't get um, sick on a plane and you can't catch a droplet from somebody's cough on a plane. I'm not saying that, but at least the air isn't carrying the, the, the droplets around to everyone. And an airline should explain that better. They could do it in the uh, safety videos or you know before or after the safety videos. Lots of airlines have screens. They could talk about it there. They could put little... Um, cards and the seat backs, just help people understand 
how to understand their risk on the airplane. I also talked about while there's not that much demand, they can certainly enforce some distancing, which most airlines are doing, although that's going to go away quickly. And the last thing, which I think is pretty important, is the idea of revising sick, sick passenger policies. You know, today, Seth, if you have a ticket for a flight tomorrow and you go to the airline and you say, I have coronavirus, I don't want to get on this plane and infect everyone. They will probably let you not go and not charge you because of the sure. environment we're in. But before coronavirus, if you went to a, a ticket counter and said, um, I'm really sick, I think I may have the flu, I don't want to fly today, they would have said, well, here's what it's going to cost you to change your ticket. And they would have talked to you about change fees, about um, rebooking fees. You may have had to pay what the industry calls an ad collect, meaning the higher price for a new ticket if you wanted to fly in a week or something like that. And essentially, they would penalize the customer for making what is a really good health decision not to fly in the plane. Yeah. Now, there's obviously all kinds of ways people can scam that too, right? I, I decided sure. I don't want to take this trip, so just give me a refund and I'll sure. tell you I'm sick, right? So I, I'm not suggesting that that would be easy. But I think airlines should think about how they can credibly, within their economics, say, look, if you're really sick, we don't want you on the plane. Just like if you're sick, we don't want you in the office either, right? right. I mean, businesses want people to stay home when they're sick because they don't right. want them to affect everyone in the office. That same idea and not create sort of an economic penalty if they make that good decision. I think that's a, a more subtle thing, but I think it's something that airlines work on and it would be good for them and good for the industry to do. Yeah. Well, if you want to read more about that, I think you just Google like Baldanza Low Tech Ways Forbes and, and that, uh, that piece will, will pop right up. Well, now it's time, Ben, for the portion of the show we call Spirit Passengers Behaving Badly, right? <laughs> or maybe we should call it that anyway, because that's what it basically seems to be. How are there even enough people flying for this to happen every week? Well, this time it happened aboard Spirit Flight 709 from Los Angeles to Detroit. Seems a man was trying to sleep while other passengers were being too noisy. Now, uh, if he thought they were too rowdy, he should try getting on a Spirit flight from Vegas. But anyway, that's not the point. Apparently, he complained. The next thing you knew, there was a bloody flight. All of this captured like everything nowadays on video. Uh, one passenger later told a Detroit area TV station, passengers asked flight attendants why they didn't try to break up the flight. And the flight attendant said, quote, we don't get paid enough to deal with this. The same woman who made that allegation, by the way, also criticized the airline for operating what she described as a packed flight after saying it would provide for social distancing in view of coronavirus concerns. Anyway, the pilots heard about what was going on, so they attempted to land in Des Moines, Iowa, but the control tower there said Des Moines is way too civilized a place to allow spirit to land there. No, just kidding. That's not what happened. The plane did land in Des Moines. But I'm not joking about this next part. So you had these bloody people who had just been in a fight, hauled off the plane, but the cops didn't make any arrests because, and again, this part is for real, quote, it was determined the incident took place over Nebraska, so Des Moines Police Department has no jurisdiction. That's what they said. Well, the alleged attackers were allowed to continue to Detroit after changing out of their bloody clothes. So, Ben, my takeaway from all this is that if the alleged attackers had a carry-on bag full of clothes on the plane to be able to change, they clearly weren't aware it's a better deal on spirit to check a bag than to carry one on because a check bag costs five bucks less than a carry-on and can be twice as big. <laughs> what a great story, Seth. There are so many things wrong with this, right? <laughs> I mean, 
you know, okay, so you want to sleep on a flight. You'd like people to be quiet. And again, like the going back to the, the guy who was rapping on the woman's seat for reclining it, right? Just talk to people, right? And maybe he said, can you keep it down? And maybe they were obnoxious to him. But the fact that it would get into fisticuffs with blood is just amazing. That diversion undoubtedly cost Spirit thousands of dollars, yeah. maybe tens of thousands of dollars to land a plane like that d- disrupted everybody else on the airplane in terms of at least when they were planning on getting to Detroit. And then they let him back on the plane too, because, <laughs> because the Des Moines people can't do anything about it. It's an amazing story. Actually. It just shows how uncivil people can be at times and the quick sort of it's not my job attitude from the flight attendant. I'm sure the people at Spirit are livid about that and figuring out what they can do within their contracts to do something about that attitude. Yeah, well, now at cruise altitude here on Airlines Confidential, could some old, unloved, small airplanes finally find love again in the air? It's more Airlines Confidential next. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanz, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Ben, I want to get to the mailbag, but first I have kind of a neat story for you. Remember last week we talked about the importance of setting a good example for kids, and I told that story uh, about the time I was going into a baseball game with my uncle and my younger cousin and my cousin, I said he was seven years old. I realized later I did the math that he would have been six years old. So it would have been that, uh, that at the time, if you were like up to five years old, it was either cheap or free to get in. And, you know, I was, a, I was an older kid then. I was like 17. I said to my uncle, Hey, you know, they're not going to know whether he's five. It would have been five or six. And my uncle said, no, but he knows. And, and that it's more important to show him that we do the right thing than it is to, to save a few bucks. Anyway, I told that story on here. And my cousin, Alex, who's now in his 30s, I had no idea. He listened to the podcast. It's not like I told him, hey, go, go and listen to this. And, and, and then he did. He, he just texted me. He said, hey, I listened to the podcast. And I remembered that trip. Uh, it was in Minneapolis. We went to a tri- Twins game, and I thought that was really neat and a neat tribute to uh, to Alex's dad, my uncle Glenn, who who, who died a few years ago, uh, way too young, and was was a great influence in my life. I was a really lucky kid growing up. I had exactly two uncles. Each of my parents has one brother, Uncle Glenn and Uncle Norman, who's still very much with us, and and they were just great leaders and great influences on me. And so I, I thought that was cool uh, that I didn't even get a chance to tell Alex that, and he got to hear it on on the radio. Well, okay, time now uh, to hear from our astute listeners. Uh, You might remember last week, one listener asked if fuel hedges might come back into fashion now that fuel is so cheap. And your answer, Ben, was basically probably not. Well, Dave from Dallas, I think last week's question was from Dallas too, but not from Dave. Uh, Dave has a question about whether something else that has fallen out of favor might experience a resurgence. In this case, not fuel hedges, but something very tangible. Dave writes, hey guys, love the show. Seems like 50 seat regional jets have been fading out of vogue for years now, but with fuel as cheap as it is, together with the likelihood that airlines may be downscaling capacity in the near or even medium term, do you see any future for the 50-seat market? Seems to be uh, one of the manufacturers would think about a clean sheet 50-seater jet or turboprop or even smaller like an Embraer 135. 
What do you guys think? What a great question, Ben. I mean, so very, and, and you could do a whole show just on this, but you know, very quickly, uh, Dave clearly understands the airline economics. Smaller jets, generally, the, the trip costs are lower. In other words, just the cost of flying the jet, forget about how many people are on board. You know, it's cheaper to fly a 50-seat jet somewhere, total cost, than to fly a 100-seat jet. But the unit cost, the cost of carrying each seat, is higher because you don't get to divide the cost as among as many passengers. You still got to pay two pilots to fly it. Maybe they earn a little less, but they don't earn only half as much as the pilots of the, of the 100 seat flight, and, and so on and so forth. And so that's why the economics of these planes have been cheap. And it's especially true when fuel is expensive because a 50 seat jet doesn't burn only half as much fuel as a 100 seat jet. It burns like three quarters of as much fuel. So the total trip costs are lower. The unit costs are higher. But what Dave is saying, among other things here, is, hey, when not that many people want to fly anyway, Maybe we're thinking again about total trip costs and maybe especially when fuel is cheap and you're not taking that penalty in terms of efficiency. What do you think, Ben? And, and we have indeed seen airlines in some subtle ways favoring these during their current attempt to, to manage through this. Thanks, Dave, for a really good question. You know, and with your permission, I'd like to use this question on a future exam in my airline economics class that I teach at George Mason University. Oops, Ben, you just, <laughs> gave, you just gave it away for any, any of your students who are listening, but yeah, it is. Yeah, I know, that's right. But, uh, but, but it should be for future students, not the ones taking the class down, right? Because, the, um, because I think my students, this is the way they should answer it, is, is the way I would answer it. I don't think there'll be a resurgence of this size airplane. And the reason is that fleet planning and planning for fleets and airlines, unlike almost everything the airline does, have enormous long-time consequences to them. You, know, you can make a pricing decision and really mess it up, and it really doesn't affect anything more than maybe the next 90 days. You can make a bad scheduling decision and schedule a flight that doesn't have a lot of demand. That's very easy to do right now, by the way. <laughs> but, um, um, you know, by mistake, and you can fix that in the next schedule. And, and you know, that's no more than a year or so in, in sort of timing. Fleet decisions can last 10, maybe 20 years or more. So for a company to sort of build a newer 50-seat plane with sort of modern composites and maybe more efficient than the existing models that exist out there, it would take enormous amounts of R&D, and the number of people who would want to buy it, I think, would be almost zero because of what you just said of that unit cost being so high. Having a lower trip cost is great, but there's, I don't think anybody in the industry right now who believes that 10 years from now that there won't be more travel than there was all last year. Yeah. Right. It may take 10 years yeah. and it may take five years to get to a point where we can think about that. Right. But if you say 10 years from now that we're going to want that the world's going to have as much people, as many people traveling on airplanes as they did before. And I, I'd be willing to bet that that's going to be true. Yeah. Right? People need to move. Economies need to move. People want to travel. Seeing different parts of the world is one of the joys of living, in fact. Right. Yeah. As well as as well as. Um, as well as transacting business and such. And so for this, for Dave's um, idea to be true, you'd be talking about a company developing the plane, not having it available for sale for another, maybe if they're really quick, five to eight years, and then having have airlines that would fly it for the next 10 to 20 years. 
And that's the scope of time in fleet planning for airlines. So the 50-seat plane came and went away. And it came and went away. It came at a time when turboprops were slow and there was a real customer avoidance of turboprops or at least the perception of avoidance. And airlines had all these models that say, if we just take out this turboprop with the same size jet, more people will pay us more and want to fly us. And they believed all that. And, um, yeah. and so they, they bought a lot of 50-seat planes. But relatively quickly, people started upgrading the 50 seats to 70 seats and the 70 seats to 90 seats because you can't overcome those seat economics and how important they are. And with the proliferation of low fares and low fare airlines, um, the idea of a 50 seat plane being a real economic generator for anyone in the long term just doesn't seem right to me. Yeah. And there's been a little bit of resurgence in demand for turboprops in recent years as they've gotten better uh, ATRs and, and to some degree the Bombardier AQ 400s, but but that still seems pretty niche right now. A turboprop, you know, so a 50 seat turboprop is more efficient than a 50 seat jet in terms of fuel burn and, and they're not as noisy and all that as they used to be. But again, niche, just certain applications, but not something where they, at least up until now, seem to be, you know, taking over the world. Well, do you have a question for us? You can call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. Again, 305-379-7429. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. You'll see a form on there to submit your question. Well, beginning our descent on today's show, it's time to say goodbye. Not to you. No, not yet. More fun to come, but to an iconic fleet type at Delta. I'm talking about the McDonnell Douglas 88, the MD-88, also the MD-90 at Delta. According to CH Aviation, Delta still has 26 MD-88s in service as of today and another 10 MD-90s. It's actually a lot of planes considering how many people are flying or how few people really are flying nowadays. Alas, all of those planes will be retired in June. Yes, next month. Uh, that aircraft program's lineage at Delta traces back even further than these planes. I mean, last decade, you could still get on a DC-9. Douglas Corporation, DC, was half of what became McDonnell Douglas. Delta inherited those DC-9s, some of which were built in the 1960s from Northwest Airlines when Delta and Northwest merged. Ben, I remember back when Delta retired the L-1011 a couple decades ago, and I felt like a part of my childhood was gone. Uh, the the MD-88 has very much been a workhorse of, of Delta's fleet, as well as the fleet of other airlines around the world. Yeah, that's a, it's a great, great airplane, actually, in lots of ways. And one of the things that made that airplane such a hard decision for airlines like Delta and American, who flew the M, you know, hundreds and hundreds of the MD-80s. Yeah, American just um, retired them last, yeah, last, that's uh, right. last year. Um, yeah. is, that, is that they were real, real tanks in terms of, uh, you know, they, they could fly forever and they, they weren't ridiculously expensive to maintain, although they certainly got more expensive as they got older. And they weren't that complicated a piece of equipment. And they just lasted a really, really long time. I remember when I worked at Northwest, worked for a guy named Mike Levine, who unfortunately has passed away, terrific executive, and then was the, was the head of the Yale School of Management also. Yeah. But Mike used to talk about how great the plane was. And he actually tried to convince McDonnell Douglas at the time to produce a new version of that plane, but don't put all the bells and whistles on of it of high tech. He said, just, he said, we don't need a real expensive plane to fly from Minneapolis to Fargo, yeah. right? We can, we just need something that's really reliable and really safe and it can be pretty basic. And, 
And these DC-9s, we have do the job for us, but we know they're not going to last forever. Build us another DC-9, essentially, right? right. And, and don't make me pay for all this new technology. And he was right about that. But, but um, technology does win over time. And if the world's going to be smaller, the airline world, as we all believe it will be for some period of time, you're going to want the most efficient fleet you have. And you certainly don't want to be burning more fuel than you need to be because while fuel prices are low today, I don't think anybody believes they're going to be this price for the next 10 years. Right? Right. And so this is, it is a sad thing. The, the planes aren't being retired because they wouldn't be safe to fly, but they're just not economic to fly anymore. And that's the reality of how planes are replaced today. You know, when the, the first jets flew in the 50s and the early jets were easy to replace because the new technology was so overwhelmingly better, right, that they, they became uneconomic really quickly. Now it's really more of a fact of it's a little bit more on the margin. But this makes sense to me what Delta's doing, although I admit to you it is kind of sad. And part of it is that because the aircraft market is becoming so depressed, newer planes are going to be cheaper, right? So like everything's different. You might think right now, well, hey, if you're not flying that much, why wouldn't you want these paid off depreciated variable cost planes that don't cost you anything when they're on the ground because there's no there's no lease, there's no mortgage, no anything. But the reality, back to the discussion we had about the Max earlier, is that you're going to be able to get newer planes also for for a lot cheaper than you thought. So it, it's it's all in play here. I'll tell you, as a passenger, there's nothing like being in the MD-80 or, or the old DC-9s before it, or the 717s to, to a degree with those rear-mounted engines, and it feels like a rocket taking off compared to other, just takes off very vertically compared to uh, other aircraft. Um, okay, so we've, uh, we'll miss those, and we've talked in the second half of the show now about MD-88 and 50-seat regional jets, and that's appropriate because they both make it into this week's song. And even though those are old airplanes, uh, this week, it's a brand new song, not one from my archives back when I was writing about airlines like Northwest and U.S. Airways. Now, uh, first of all, I think this goes without saying, Ben, but I want to say it anyway. This is the worst crisis the airline industry has faced, one of the worst crises the world in general has ever faced. People are getting sick and dying, including some frontline airline workers. So when we joke around a little, we do it recognizing the gravity of what's happening. The reality is what it is. We're just here with you trying to get through this together. And sometimes that means laughing when crying isn't going to do any good anyway. Now, I told you a little bit of this story last week, uh, but this started as kind of a joke with my friend Chris Sloan of Airways Magazine. Chris also writes for CNN's website and others. Uh, Chris and his wife, Carla, are big philanthropists. There's actually a tragic element to all this. If you want to read about that, uh, you can do this. Google Sloan, S-L-O-A-N, Sloan Awesome Foundation. You'll read the story uh, that'll get you there. Anyway, Chris asked me a couple weeks ago when I was going to sing again. And I said, Chris, I'm glad you like my singing, uh, but a lot of people actually hate it. I said, Chris, you know what would be a great fundraiser? And I was really joking. Let people make COVID-19 relief effort donations toward me either singing or not singing. So you click yes or no and you donate and whichever one wins, yes or no, determines whether or not I sing. Chris said, Seth, I'll make this easier. I will donate $250 toward the charity of your choice if you sing another one of your old songs, or I'll donate $500 if you write a new song about what's going on now. Well, I ran out of time to write a new song for last week, but I sang uh, my old hit, Connecting in Memphis, and I told Chris, hey, I'd throw that one in for free. He could just donate $500 for that one, plus a new one this week. Well, Chris negotiated against himself and said, nope he would donate $750 for the two of them. 
And he actually already made a donation to the COVID-19 response fund over at the George Washington University School of Medicine. The reason that came about was because Chris saw a photo of my wife, Dina, Ben, you know Dina, uh, dressed in that acronym everybody now knows, PPE, in the COVID unit at uh, George Washington University Hospital where she works. So Chris made the donation in, in honor of the inpatient therapy department there where she works. Now the pressure was on. I had to write a song. And I looked at these thousands of dollars in airline vouchers I have, which I have no use for right now. And I thought about how easy airlines have made it to attain elite status. But meanwhile, I haven't been on an airplane since January. And I thought, isn't that ironic? A 30-year-old Delta MD-88 boarded six passengers in masks and pushed back from the gate. It's a droplet of corona in your first-class Chardonnay. It's your upgrade clearing to a Comfort Plus middle seat. And isn't it ironic? Don't you think? It's like 1K status on an all-economy RJ. No international travel. Went for global entry, you just paid. An amenity kit, eye mask, when you have to cover your whole face. And who would have thought it's COVID? Mr. Play It Safe was afraid to redeem miles. He booked coach class to Milan, kissed his system-wide upgrade goodbye. He waited his whole damn life to take that business class flight. And as the borders closed down, he thought, well, isn't this nice? And isn't it ironic? Don't you think? It's like 1K status on an all-economy RJ. No international travel. Went for global entry, you just paid. An amenity kit, I mask. When you have to cover your whole face. And who would have thought it's COVID? Well, pandemics have a funny way of sneaking up on you when you think everything's okay and canceling all your flights. And airlines have a funny way of helping you out when you don't want to travel and getting back home is like amazing race. A7 boarding pass on Southwest when there's no one holding A8. A million dollar voucher when there's no trip to take. It's like 10,000 waffles when all you need is a flight. It's getting a mileage redeposit fee waived because the only thing flying is a kite. Isn't it ironic, don't you think? Not wearing a mask is moronic. And yeah, I really do think. It's like 1K status, help me out, Ben. On an all-economy RJ, no long-haul travel. Went for global entry, you just made an eye mask. When you have to cover your whole face. And who would have thought it's COVID? And yeah, Panda, 
comics have a funny way of sneaking up on you. Your life have a funny, funny way of helping you out. Helping you out. I could only hope it ended earlier. From the <laughs> Evidential Studios, I'm Ben Balanza. And I'm Seth Kaplan all day. Uh, talk to you, and I do mean talk this time, not sing. I promise. Next week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.